We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, American tradition. We've been involved in a lot of different changes of government through many, many decades. Will it always be the case? Is this something we should always do? Is there a difference between Democrats and Republicans? Bert Cohen here, keeping democracy alive. Hillary Clinton and Honduras, with all the focus seeming to be on her emails and other alleged scandals and other issues, her performance and record as Secretary of State and the policies that existed when she was Secretary of State have been largely overlooked. Well, today, we're going to put her State Department-coordinated actions in a military coup down in Honduras under the microscope. For many years, Hillary Clinton has been quite clear in her admiration for the foreign policy approach implemented by then-Secretary of State Henry Kissinger in places like Vietnam, where Kissinger intentionally scuttled a peace deal in 1968, of course resulting in thousands and thousands of deaths and uh, loss of limb, unnecessarily, but he wanted to elect Nixon. Like Kissinger's approach to Cambodia, where despite opposition from the military commanders, he launched a ferocious carpet bombing of massive areas of that country, which brought us the murderous Paul Pot and the killing fields. And like Kissinger's direct orchestration of the violent coup on September 11th, 1973, which overthrew the democratically elected president of Chile. Now... In 2008, when America elected Barack Obama, the developing world expressed hope and a not unreasonable expectation that things under the new administration and the State Department of Hillary Clinton would be different, that the American role in military coups would finally be an ugly thing of the past, and that America would at last let nations determine their own future without American intervention. Many of us who enthusiastically voted in the new administration shared that hope and expectation. Well, it seems instead what we got in terms of foreign intervention was more of the same, perhaps a little bit more calculated, not so overtly violent, but still more of the same. According to Jonathan Marshall of Consortium News Service, quote, as Secretary of State in 2009, Hillary Clinton helped a right-wing coup in Honduras remove an elected 
left-of-center president setting back the cause of democracy and enabling corrupt and drug-tainted forces to tighten their grip on the poverty-stricken country. Same old, same old, I guess. With, with, while these days most of the focus regarding refugees is on those from the tragic wars in Iraq and Syria, a great many Hondurans and other Central Americans continue to struggle to get to America, to El Norte. Some have suggested we just build a wall. Of course, that would ignore the reasons for their desperate flight from their homelands. On today's Keeping Democracy Alive, we'll look at what has happened to Honduras since the president, Obama, and Hillary Clinton since their approved coup in 2009. I'm very pleased to have with us today as guest Alexander Main, Senior Associate for International Policy at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Alexander, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you, Bert. Great to be on your show. Of the massive amount of Hillary Clinton emails being looked at, some released very recently include some telling exchanges about the June 2009 military coup that toppled democratically elected Honduran President Manuel Zelaya, a mild leftist who was seen as a threat by the Honduran establishment and American business interests. Tell us about who Zelaya was and why there was motivation to remove him forcibly from office. So, well, I think, you know, first of all, I think it's important to know the sort of relationship that the U.S. has had with Honduras um, over the years, for a very long time now, um, certainly since uh, the height of the Cold War period. In the 1980s, it served as a platform for U.S. Uh, intervention uh, and support for uh, the Contras uh, in Nicaragua, um, and uh, the the U.S. supported um, the military dictatorship there at the beginning of the 80s, and then was very much involved in um, a sort of a partial transition to democracy in a state that remained essentially very militarized uh, and with uh, an extremely uh, conservative um, uh, constitution uh, that, that made it very difficult, in fact, to to implement any kind of real structural change in, in the country. And that's the way that the U.S. Uh, wanted it. Um, yeah. They had and still have important uh, U.S. military assets there. So in the 80s, they actually had the CIA that set up uh, bases, and this is you know, pretty well known at this point, in northeastern Honduras uh, to help um, provide uh, support to the Contras in Nicaragua. Um, and still today, they have a very important presence in the main uh, air base of Honduras, Sotocano, uh, where you have hundreds of Marines. Uh, you have more that have been deployed recently. And a, a good deal of U.S. security assistance uh, goes to the country. It's, it's a strategic um, uh, you know, base uh, for U.S. military operations in the region. Um, and I think you know, that's one of the important things to know about Honduras, and that uh, traditionally the governments of Honduras have been very, very close to the U.S. and have also been uh, really very conservative. Uh, and this seemed to be the case when Manuel Zelaya was first elected uh, in 2006, um, but he went in a direction that um, 
I think no one, including people inside Honduras, had anticipated, uh-huh. certainly not the U.S. Uh-huh. Uh, he uh, became much closer to some of the radical social movements of the country uh, and started implementing uh, some interesting reforms. Uh, he uh, increased uh, the minimum wage. Mm. Uh, he also uh, reversed a uh, trend of privatization of various state companies. Uh, that upset quite a few people. Um, and basically he showed that he was very independent from uh, the sort of traditional oligarchy that had controlled uh, mm. the country, and independent from the U.S. as well. And I think, uh, you know, the U.S. certainly noted that the social movements that he began to align himself with, and these were, you know, primarily sort of campesino movements and unions in the country, uh, for instance, called for the departure of the U.S. from the base of Sotocano. Mm-hmm. So that was going on domestically, and on the international front, um, Zelaya aligned himself with the more left-wing governments, particularly Venezuela, um, and he signed the Venezuelan Petro-Caribe Energy Agreement, despite the U.S. putting intense pressure on him not to, and we know about that pressure from the WikiLeaks cables mm-hmm. that were leaked in 2009, 2010. Um, and... Um, Honduras also became part of ALBA, sort of this radical left-wing block of Latin American countries. It includes Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and Honduras, briefly, until the coup occurred in June uh, of 2009. So I, not everybody is aware geographically of where Honduras is. Uh, you know, we know somewhere in Central America. Could you just briefly tell us where it is? And also, while you're doing that, I know that in El Salvador, for quite some time, there were like 13 ruling families. Was, that, was it something similar to that in Honduras? In Honduras, they often speak of 10 ruling families. Oh, I think it, it, might, it might be a bit more, uh, but certainly a very small group that controls um, sort of all of the major companies in the country and banks, mm-hmm. um, and also the media. Uh, nearly all of the private media is under the tight control of these families. Uh, and, you know, these families sort of all turned against um, Manuel Zelaya when uh-huh. he began to sort of go towards the left uh, in his own politics, um, with the possible exception of one um, family, I think, perhaps hedging their bets, the Rosenthal family, and, and they had a media outlet that was uh, a little bit more sympathetic to Zelaya. But on the whole, um, right. you know, they were very, very opposed to him and, uh, you know, certainly backed the military coup that occurred uh, at the end of uh, June of 2009. And Honduras is located, um, it's uh, really just uh, sort of beneath the, the Yucatan Peninsula of yeah. Mexico, uh-huh. um, if you sort of draw a straight line from there, you come across Honduras, uh, and it fits, um, it's a strategic point, really, because it has um, long borders with Guatemala, El Salvador, mm-hmm. and Nicaragua. Oh, and as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, in the 1980s, those three countries that I mentioned yeah. um, had uh, some very ugly civil conflicts going on where the U.S. is very much involved. And, and the base in Honduras, I wonder about how many uh, American service members there traditionally are in, in that, at that base in uh, Honduras. 
Well, it's about it's about five hundred that are there, uh, sort of on a permanent basis. Uh, but um, you know, I think the most important thing about the base is that it's really essentially controlled by the U.S. And in fact, it's referred to all over the country as a U.S. base, although nominally it belongs to the uh-huh. Honduran government. Uh-huh. And so Zelaya got elected in two thousand six when. President George W. Bush was in office. How did he let that one slip through? Well, again, when Zelaya was first elected, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think any alarm bells went off because he himself is a wealthy rancher. Um, he belonged to uh, the Liberal Party, which was, you know, one of the two major parties. The other uh, um, uh, party there. Uh, more conservative party, but the two major parties that have held on to power ever since the military dictatorship um, and have, you know, resisted any kind of major change to the status quo in the country. Um, and he uh, turned out to be a bit of a, of, of a maverick, um, uh-huh. and, um, and, and, you know, everyone sort of lost control of him, uh, and that became clear towards the end of 2007. And yet here we had a brand new president, Barack Obama, who talked about hope and change. Was it, it seems, you know, so, so kind of surprising. It was surprising to me because certainly under many past American administrations, there's been heavy, rather blatant involvement in, in removing leaders of developing nations that we didn't like. Who who was the who would be the we in this situation? Who really didn't like uh, Manuel Zelaya? What what interests had the motivation to remove Manuel Zelaya from office? And what about this non difference from? I mean, it's it's surprising to me. I I really thought things would be different uh, in terms of you know American intervention in this kind of thing. No, absolutely. Well, I think. You know, most of U.S. foreign policy establishment uh, certainly didn't like uh, Zelaya, and didn't like what he was doing in Honduras. And, um, you know, that became quite clear uh, in a lot of the media that we saw, a lot of the editorials, um, op-eds, and so on that came out after the coup that um, sort of scolded Zelaya and said, you know, you kind of deserved to get this coup because you, you misbehaved. about those emails since you mentioned it? 
what 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 is seen there? I mean, nobody you know listening to this is going to have actual access and and really look at them. What what has been found there? Well, sure. I mean, I, I think you know the first thing we've got to say about the emails is uh, that uh, for one, we don't have all of the emails yet. They're right. being released progressively, and it's going to be thirty thousand emails uh, altogether. Um, so there'll be many more months of email releases, but that. Um, a lot of these emails are heavily redacted, um, and particularly the ones where you might get a sense of what Hillary Clinton's opinion is on certain issues. That seems to be redacted, and, and you don't get much of a sense of where she stands um, quite often. Hmm. Uh, and we've got to remember as well that you know she deleted a lot of her emails. Um, right. So you know more than half of the emails from from this uh, server that she used uh, were deleted. Um, and she says, you know, she deleted them because they were, she judged them to be personal emails. Uh-huh. And, you know, indeed, I'm sure a lot of them were, but right. there are a tremendous amount of emails that were lost that, you know, I'm sure touched on a lot of the issues that we're interested in, mm. uh, you know, during her tenure at the State Department. But, um, you know, we still have an interesting glimpse at what was going on, and I think uh, the really key thing that we see is the U.S. Um, fighting to really control um, the the whole uh, uh, negotiation process around the political future of Honduras, where you know initially uh, there were discussions, multilateral discussions within the Organization of American States, uh, where you know all the governments of the region were involved and. Most of the governments of the region were absolutely appalled to see a military coup uh, take place, you know, with impunity. Mm. Um, you know, it reminded them of you know, some of the worst years in Latin America. And, you know, they were determined um, to sanction uh, Honduras to avoid, to, to, for one, to reverse the coup and, uh, and also to avoid, you know, similar coups occurring again, because obviously it could create a domino effect. Mm. The coup occurs, and there aren't any significant sanctions, and others are going to, you know, want to do the same thing in other countries. So uh, there, there was really a lot of pressure within the Organization of American States to take strong sanctions against Honduras. And what the U.S. did was removed the discussion from the Organization of American States. Yeah. And shifted it over to Costa Rica, where they had um, a very close ally, uh, the president there, Oscar Arias, who became the official mediator in negotiations that put um, the coup regime and the constitutional government of Zelaya, his representatives, on an equal footing with um, Oscar Arias and the U.S. mediating. And what you see very early on in the emails is that the purpose of this is they were considering um, restoring Zelaya to power, uh, but they would only want him to have very limited functions to become sort of a symbolic uh-huh. uh, president in the last months or week, weeks of his uh, mandate. Um, and under a unity government, it would no longer be his government. It would have other uh, political actors involved. Um, and... So, you know, they were, they were pushing for this, but not very hard, and the coup regime had no real incentive to, um, 
even go as far as this and dragged its feet. And so in the end, the U.S. decided to change its strategy and sort of go along with the coup regime and uh, endorse elections in the country without the prior uh, restoration of Manuel Zelaya um, as the democratically elected president, which is what, you know, basically the entire rest of the region was calling for. Yeah. But um, the U.S. essentially prevented this from happening and unilaterally uh, endorsed these elections. And so, you, I mean, mm. you, you see how um, the U.S. is adamantly trying to keep the discussion about the future of Honduras outside of the OAS, and particularly because it's concerned about some of the left-wing governments there having an influence on the discussion. And, you know, shifting it over to a forum that it controls entirely. So I think, you know, that's, that's one of the big things. Fascinating discussion. It's interesting to see, you know, it's not just the issue of allowing, you know, access to emails of the former Secretary of State, but what's on them. And it sounds very, very interesting. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. And our guest today is Alexander Main, Senior Associate for International Policy at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Um, so Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, approved the continuation of U.S. aid to what was largely seen as an illegitimate uh, regime. Uh, is that true? And, and she blocked demands by the OAS and the people of Honduras. There was a lot of action on the streets. I actually, at the time, you know, it looked like there was so much protest on the streets that, that in some forms, Zelaya uh, would have to be uh, returned. Why? This is all accurate, right? Why is why would she do such a thing? And why is this not better known? Do you think? Well, I, you know, I think there are a number of factors. I think maybe it's first useful to sort of go over what what she did do and didn't do. Um, and, you know, some assistance was cut off uh, following the coup. Right, because... Um, then sort of reluctantly the U.S. took further measures. Uh, it was being pushed to take much stronger measures, both by the, you know, constitutional government of Zelaya and other countries in the region. Uh, Bolivia, for instance, uh, in, introduced a resolution into the Organization of American States, uh, which it seems that the U.S. blocked, which called on uh, other states to take sort of economic sanctions um, and to insist on the immediate return of Zelaya. One thing that the U.S. never did was insist on the immediate return. Um, and Hillary Clinton uh, said, oh, no, that, that will cause instability in the country. That's dangerous. We don't want uh, his immediate return. We want you know, a long negotiation process to sort all of this out politically. Um, and, and, of course, that long negotiation process uh, was completely to the advantage of the, the mm. regime, <laughs> and and they and they and they kept him out of power, and he never returned to power. He returned to Honduras, but he was in internal exile in the Brazilian embassy. And then the day of the inauguration of uh, the new president, under these uh, illegitimate elections that occurred at the end of 2009. Uh, the day of that inauguration, Zelaya um, was put on a plane to the Dominican Republic, and he remained there for another two years. Um, so, I mean, it was a complete disaster uh, in terms of uh, sort of anyone with um, a, 
desire to see democracy restored to Honduras. Mm. But I think, you know, it was seen as certainly serving uh, U.S. interests. Um, again, these military assets that the U.S. has in the region, you know, were protected under, uh, under a government that came out of the coup because you had the same sort of right-wing um, forces that are close to the U.S. that remain in control of the country. Um, and, you know, it involved more than that. It involved also um, preventing a key country in Central America from going left and from joining the sort of growing right. movement of left, left-wing radical uh, governments in Latin America. So, so mm. it, 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 you know, it succeeded in stopping that. It always amazes me how for so many decades uh, it's just been non-controversial to refer to Central America as, quote, our backyard. I mean, <laughs> what kind of, what does that say to the people of the area? It's not, I mean, are we their backyard? Should they, you know, be legitimately involved in overthrowing our governments? I don't think so. And I wonder what, you know, economic interests that, uh, I imagine corporate interests there may be there. I mean, Guatemala, uh, I believe, uh, was was famous as being a banana republic, and the term came from uh, the United Fruit Company being involved in uh, the overthrow back in 1954. Are there specific economic interests uh, of major U.S. corporations there? I am not familiar with them. Well, absolutely. I mean, um, you have a lot of assembly plants. The whole model of the maquila that developed in Mexico has spread um, to uh, Central America, and particularly Honduras and El Salvador. I don't know what the maquila is. So the maquila, I mean, you know, you can describe them as sweatshops. Uh, okay. <laughs> so an underpaid, flexible workforce uh, that, you know, does sort of very menial, unskilled work. Right. Um, textile. Uh, plants or, you know, basic assembly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this doesn't create decent jobs. It's not sustainable. No. Um, most of the income um, from these plants uh, doesn't benefit the country. Uh, the plants are often given uh, sort of big tax incentives, mm. uh, resulting in most of the revenue uh, leaving the country and never benefiting uh, most of the people <laughs> of the country. Um, and, you know, that's uh, sort of a system that's developing even more now um, mm. with, with new forms of assistance that are going to the region from the U.S. And um, your listeners may remember last uh, summer, well, I guess now two summers ago, you had uh, what was referred to as a child migrant crisis oh, yes. at the border with Mexico. Um, and you had, you know, tens of thousands of child migrants fleeing their countries. There was a survey that, you know, showed that, you know, many of them were essentially refugees fleeing extremely violent uh, conditions in those countries. Uh, And the three countries that they came from were El Salvador, Guatemala, um, and Honduras, Mm. with more coming from Honduras than any of the other countries. And uh, the U.S. administration's response was to put together a big aid package and then it worked with the governments of the region um, and the Inter-American Development Bank to come up with a plan called the Alliance for Prosperity. 
And what this plan uh, provides to this region, known as the Northern Triangle, again, the three countries are Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, it provides a great deal of security assistance, so the sort of um, quote-unquote assistance that has been going to these countries for the war on drugs for many years. Mm. And, you know, that's something we can best discuss as well. It's very yes. problematic. Oh, yeah. But then a lot of um, assistance to develop infrastructure and to develop new forms of uh, legislation and so on um, that make the countries more attractive to foreign direct uh, investment. Sure. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think, you know, that's the real point of all this. Yeah. And foreign direct investment typically doesn't help um, countries develop very much. Right. Uh, you have capital flows that are extremely fickle. Um, they go back and forth um, very easily. And, um, you know, again, they're creating a terrain in these countries for companies to essentially exploit the workforce, exploit natural resources, and so on, um, and then uh, channel, you know, most of their revenue back to these corporations with very, very little going to the countries themselves. Hmm. So, you know, arguably of little or no benefit uh, to the countries. But this is the sort of development assistance that's being promoted by the U.S. and these countries now. Hmm. Top-down development, use that term advisedly. We'll talk about uh, uh, what you've also written about with regard to uh, the IMF and their austerity uh, you know, plans for the people of Honduras as we uh, go along. We're talking about uh, the realities that the U.S. has helped push along in Honduras. And we're not talking about under you know, Nixon or Eisenhower Reagan. This is under President Obama and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And very early on, after the coup in June of 2009, I hear there was a a break between President Obama and Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton regarding Honduras. Obama called uh, Zelaya's removal an illegal coup the day after it happened. But from what I read, Secretary of State Clinton refused to brand it a coup because that would mean that if it were a military coup, it would by law have to suspend U.S. military aid to Honduras. And later she opposed Zelaya's, Zelaya's return to Honduras after having been removed from the country. Uh, how, how significant is this apparent difference in, in language between uh, Obama and his Secretary of State Clinton? Well, yeah, there there were some differences certainly between the White House and the State Department um, to begin with, and the State Department was very cautious about its language. Again, it's interesting to see um, the influence of Thomas Shannon here. Uh, the first email that he um, sent to Hillary Clinton after the coup occurred, he didn't call it a coup. Um, in fact, he, I mean, he did say it was very troubling. He said. Um, the seizure and expulsion of the president was an intolerable act, and we we are going to have to say this loud and clear. But he didn't say we have to call it a coup loud and clear, mm. and that's because calling it a coup has implications. Right. Um, and the State Department did eventually call it a coup, but what they didn't do was refer to it as a military coup. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's a reason for that. Yes. Because uh, in the um, appropriations legislation at the time. Um, if 
uh, the State Department were to characterize what happened as a military coup, yes, as they did it around the same time in Madagascar and Mauritius, two countries where there were also military coups, it would lead to an immediate suspension of all non-humanitarian assistance. And that's a step that the U.S. Uh, didn't want to take. And, you know, there are various factors that were at play there, and you can see this in the emails. Um, but, you know, one thing you do see is that some of Clinton's closest advisors, including Anne-Marie Slaughter, um, who was working on her, you know, you know basically just, just underneath her and had direct access to the Secretary of State, she advised Hillary Clinton to um, call it a military coup. And she did so, you know, basically in defense of U.S. interests in the region. She said, we're looking bad regionally by not doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got to take a harder line because the rest of the region is losing respect for the U.S. Um, and Hillary Clinton, you know, dis- decided against that and never did call it a military coup. And so although um, there were various forms of assistance that were suspended, uh, they didn't go nearly as far as they could have gone. Mm. Uh, very, very interesting. And former U.S. Ambassador to El Salvador, Robert White, had this interesting quote. He said, if you want to understand the real power behind the coup in Honduras, you need to find out who's paying Lanny Davis. Okay, who's Lanny Davis? Well, yes, Lanny Davis is you know someone that we're bound to see more of, especially if um, Hillary Clinton, you know, uh, is elected president, uh, because Lanny Davis played a very important role um, during the Bill Clinton years. He was uh, a legal counsel to Clinton during the Whitewater and Levinsky um, affairs in the late 90s. Um, and, you know, they, they developed a very strong relationship with him. Uh, I think Hillary Clinton knew him ever since her... Um, Yale Law School years. They were at Yale Law together. I think Bill Clinton may have met him at the same time. Um, but Lanny Davis has uh, sort of turned out to be a mercenary ever since. I mean, he's very consistent in defending the Clintons and uh, did so even recently. He's been defending them against a lot of the right-wing press. Uh, but uh, he's also sort of sold his services and his connections um, to, you know, a lot of very sketchy people, including, you know, a dictator in, in the Ivory Coast, a uh, murderous dictator, you could say, um, uh, another dictator in Equatorial Guinea, and, uh, and of course, more recently, in 2009, he worked for a business lobby um, inside of uh, Honduras, so a set of um, national businesses that were very close to the coup. And he essentially lobbied in favor of the coup. And, of course, he lobbied Hillary Clinton at the State Department. He lobbied Congress. He wrote a number of articles uh, defending the coup. It appeared in the Wall Street Journal and other publications. And um, in the emails he's referred to, and again, we don't have all the emails yet, but he's already appeared um, as, you know, a back channel to um, people in the coup regime when... uh, such a back channel was needed in order to negotiate with the people who carried out the coup. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to see him, and of course one 
can assume that he had some influence over um, mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton's assessment of the situation. And then, you know, there were also, um, within Congress, there were some Republican senators, Senator DeMitt and Lemieux, um, who were opposing um, U.S. policy towards Honduras, but from sort of the far-right perspective, and uh-huh. saying that it shouldn't be called a coup at all, uh, and that mm-hmm. the U.S. had to back off and sort of let the coup regime uh, continue. And um, they had a lot of leverage over uh, appointments. Thomas Shannon had been appointed uh, ambassador to Brazil, and he was going to be replaced by um, Arturo Valenzuela at the, as assistant for Western Hemisphere Affairs. And these senators could block the nomination um, within the Foreign Relations Committee of the Senate. And it seems that that pressure, and you can see this in the emails, that pressure was something that was definitely factored into the decision-making around whether or not to call the coup a military coup. And it's sort of a sad you know, conclusion that one can draw from reading the emails that ultimately, you know, the, this leverage from Republican senators over, you know, a couple of uh, State Department appointments um, succeeded, uh, was part of the reason that the, U- that the U.S. State Department under Hillary Clinton uh, decided to be very weak um, on the coup, and, you know, essentially let the coup regime uh, survive. And again, you have Many other motivations, uh, you know, one important one being, of course, the U.S. strategic interest in Honduras. Sure. If you just tuned in, interesting stuff here. The coup in Honduras and the role of then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. We're listening to Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today, again, is Alexander Main, Senior Associate uh, for International Policy at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. What about uh, military aid and the military police? I understand that, uh, you know, possibly in the name of fighting drugs, that there's, uh, last May, the civilian and military security apparatuses, apparati, (laughs) were combined to form a new super ministry of security. What's known about this and what has been the U.S. involvement with training and arming these alleged security forces. What do we know about them and what U.S. aid might be doing on the streets of uh, Honduras? Well, you know, I think here again it's it's important to know the history of Honduras and and the region um, and the history of U.S. relations with the region in that in the 1980s, countries like Honduras El Salvador, Guatemala, were heavily militarized. Um, you know, were either under direct military control or um, had, you know, incredibly powerful militaries that were involved in paramilitary activity and so on with impunity, um, and were heavily supported by the U.S. with the U.S. security assistance then. Um, then you had uh, sort of the transition to greater peace and democracy in the early 90s. Uh, security assistance uh, diminished, but, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, it's been increasing again in the name of the war on drugs. And, you know, we're seeing the same patterns uh, from uh, the 
1980s. Uh, paramilitary activity has been again identified uh, by both, you know, the media and human rights groups in Honduras, just as um, the country becomes more and more militarized. So, of course, the coup itself was a military coup, and the military was very much involved in defending the coup, and that involved uh, military involvement in the repression of the resistance movement, uh, sort of mass demonstrations and so on, where mm. the military would intervene. The military also intervened against um, media outlets, the few media outlets uh, that opposed the coup. Uh, they were closed down by the military during this time and so on. And then in 2010, when the next government uh, came in, um, that government decided to deploy the military permanently in the streets of Honduras, throughout Honduras. Hmm. And uh, then uh, they went from there to creating um, new um, military or hybrid military corps. You have the military police that was created that's now you know, 3,000 strong and will soon be, I think, 5,000. Um, you also had uh, the Tigres, which is a hybrid group. And when I say hybrid, it is technically, you know, police officers, but who are in combat gear and who are trained in combat. And in fact, the Tigres are trained in combat by U.S. Special Forces. I was wondering. And they're not given police training. They're given military training by Special Forces. Um, and then, yes, you have uh, the, you know, growing control of, Military, um, uh, uh, military forces over, uh, you know, civilian, nominally civilian law enforcement institutions. Uh, and you describe this super ministry where you've combined sort of the defense ministry with the interior ministry uh, and controls both the army and the police um, and these various hybrid forces. And, you know, that is currently under the control of a general who was an active general when he was appointed and under you know, a huge amount of pressure, uh, he, uh, he stepped down as an active duty officer, but clearly still has a lot of links uh, to the military, um, having been a general only a year and a half ago. Uh, so, you know, this is the situation now, and the U.S., though it, you know, says, the U.S. State Department does say that they don't support this militarization. They've been pouring money into the system um, increasingly uh, since the coup. Hmm. Uh, so the amounts, the amounts of security assistance uh, have risen, uh, and this despite quite a lot of opposition um, coming from Congress. Uh, you, had, uh, you, had, you had dozens of congressional Democrats that called for a full suspension of security assistance because you've had an enormous amount of abuses that have been reportedly uh, committed by uh, security forces in Honduras. And a lot of these abuses targeting social movement leaders, human rights defenders, uh, union leaders, and so on. Hmm. Um, and this has been happening in complete impunity. So, wow. you know, there's been a lot of pressure from Congress to suspend this aid, and uh, the State Department has, for the most part, ignored this pressure. And although uh, Hillary Clinton's been out of the State Department for a little while, I haven't, she could criticize this, but I haven't heard a word. Now, no. a, a lot of this uh, 
you know, there's under the guise of uh, the great umbrella of the war against drugs. What about reality? How are the drug interests, the big money drug people, uh, affecting the country's police practices? And what is the political power of the drug cartel, you know, despite or maybe somehow related to our alleged war on drugs? Well, yeah, that's that's a, a very good question, given the um, nearly complete impunity that you see in Honduras at the moment. Uh, so you have a completely dysfunctional judiciary, uh, I would say corrupt and dysfunctional, and you've had major corruption scandals that involve uh, the ruling party. Um, the national party has skimmed perhaps between 200 and 300 million dollars from the Social Security Fund of the country, which is oh more than just Social Security in, in Honduras. It, it funds health care for everyone. They've, you know, embezzled that money, and it's gone into the coffers of, uh, you know, national party campaigns and also national party politicians. Um, and, you know, the, the revelations emerged. Uh, there were a few people that had been prosecuted, but... Uh, you know, no one really senior in the National Party. And, of course, the president of uh, the country uh, from the National Party, Juan Orlando Hernandez, remained untouched by the scandal, despite massive protests on a similar scale to what you saw in Guatemala uh, next door over the summer, which, you know, of course, did bring down the president there. Sure did. So, you know, this has been going on. And, and yes, there are many, many reports of drug trafficking organizations uh, having completely infiltrated the security forces of the country and having a lot of links with the government, um, having you know, funded campaigns uh, around the country for uh, ruling party officials and so on. Um, and you, know, you don't have any sort of judiciary that can take mm -hmm. this on uh, in an efficient manner. Interesting that, that here's next door Guatemala, a country which a lot of people remember for being one of the first uh, developing nations to be overthrown by a U.S. engineered coup back in 1954. Now, as you mentioned, Guatemala is setting an example. There's an independent investigation into inve uh, official corruption going on now. And there's, there's the drug cartel power and corruption in Honduras uh, and the new government's approach to such corruption, do they want to investigate it, or are they just, just uh, peachy with it? So, they, the, the, you know, the government says that they're interested in improving their judiciary and so on, but, you know, no real reforms have gone forward. There's been a lot of talk. And, you know, out of this protest movement that I mentioned, the, the movement of protest against these massive corruption scandals that emerged in May and June of this year, uh, you've had one solid demand from you know, everyone out in the streets, which is the creation of a similar institution, a commission against, an international commission against impunity um, uh, for Honduras, so similar to the one in Guatemala right. uh, under UN auspices. And, uh, you know, that's something that the government has refused. They've um, sort of launched a phony dialogue uh, in which um, just a few groups have participated, but very, very few. 
and in which you know they essentially uh, propose a commission against impunity, but that would remain under the control of the government. And of course, in Guatemala, I mean, what's made this commission very strong is the fact that it is uh, really entirely independent. Yeah, and I think you know this is something that both the government of Honduras doesn't want, and also uh, the U.S. government. Uh, the U.S. government has been um, sort of supporting this process, along with the Organization of American States. Um, they have, uh, you know, essentially called on the Honduran people to accept uh, the Honduran government's proposal. And I think it's precisely because they don't want to see things um, mm-hmm. uh, get out of control, as has occurred in Guatemala. Uh, the U.S. I think is very concerned about maintaining stability, or what they see as stability in Honduras. Mm. I mean, you have enormous amounts of violence uh, and so on, and and refugees fleeing to the U.S. But there is political stability, uh, which I think mm. counts a lot for the U.S. And you know they they have a huge fear that you know things could go in a bad direction again, what they mm. consider a bad direction under another populist like Manuel Zelaya, Hmm. um, you know, should they lose control. Political stability. So what? There's large-scale human rights abuses. So what? That the uh, living standards of the average uh, Honduran citizen is is not particularly good. Uh, Political stability. Boy, at at quite a high price. What, What do we know about the living standards of the average Honduran citizen since the coup? Well, um, they've gone down tremendously. Uh, we don't have the latest figures for uh, poverty, but uh, we know that between the coup in 2009 and late 2012, uh, it increased quite a lot, over 20%. Um, we know that um, unemployment and underemployment has gone from around 36% to close to 57%. Um, and inequality is now greater in Honduras than anywhere else in Latin America, oh with you know more and more of the revenue produced in the country going to the top ten percent within the country. Uh, so you know it's definitely a worsening situation um, for the people of Honduras, and it definitely helps understand why you have so many migrants uh, that have been trying to get to the U.S. Um, they yeah. still are trying, mind you, but they're now being stopped more and more often at the uh, southern border of Mexico, since the U.S. is helping Mexico um, uh, militarize the southern border and prevent any migration that would reach the U.S. border and create the sort of crisis that we saw in the summer of 2014. Yeah, just so the problem is still there. We're not seeing it as right. much right. in southern Mexico that's dealing with it more. Hmm. Um, and I would say the problem is growing. And it may be secret from most American citizens, but I bet the human rights abuses and the uh, poverty is not really secret <laughs> from the people of Honduras. They're, they're quite aware of it, and other countries are aware of it as well. And, uh, you know, talk about carrying on tradition. There's our good old friends, the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. You recently wrote about new austerity measures that the IMF intends to impose on Honduras. Tell us about these. What would austerity do to the economy, and, and how well does this fit in with uh, you know, the whole scenario we've been talking about since the 2009 coup? Well, sure. And, and you know, by the way, it 
it's more austerity because there's already been a lot of austerity in, oh, in Honduras since the coup, um, and it's and it's affected the poorest in Honduras uh, more than anyone. Um, you know, among the biggest cuts, of course, have been to uh, social programs, the health and education in the country, and that would continue under the current um, IMF agreement. Uh, they want to scale back uh, public sector expenses, so that will result in, in layoffs and um, early retirements and, and so on, and in you know wage freezes across the board inside the uh, public sector. Uh, that certainly doesn't help uh, the country either. And then uh, you know what we're seeing as well is that the um, the sort of plans that are being implemented. Um, you know, under this IMF loan agreement, uh, are, again, sort of reinforcing, you know, similar trends that we've seen before to encourage uh, foreign direct investment. Uh, so, you know, they are putting a lot, investing a lot in, in trying to receive greater inflows of foreign direct investment. Mm -hmm. you know, so supposedly this helps them deal with their, their deficit, and uh, there's really no reason to think so. It's sort of a race to the bottom yeah. kind of plan uh, that's not going to help the country mm -hmm. develop in the long term. But the race um, to the bottom is so profitable. What the heck? <laughs> that's right. And yeah. What, what, does, what does all this say about any kind of question of, of who uh, Hillary Clinton might work for? Who she works for? Who are, yeah. Who is she beholden to? Yes, exactly. Well, you know, I I, I think uh, we've already seen some of it in, in these emails that have been released. Uh, she remains close to some of the sketchy people from the Bill Clinton administration, like Lanny Davis. They can have an influence. Um, but I think, you know, without a doubt, uh, she, you know. The, the forces that are behind an IMF agreement like this one, uh, that are behind, um, you know, the U.S. development plans for the region through USAID and the Inter-American Development Bank, they are the same forces that are funding uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, big corporations, Wall Street, and so on. Uh, you know, this is the sort of program that they like, and, mm -hmm. you know, there's really no mystery <laughs> of the ties between... The, the fundraising that's going on for the Hillary Clinton campaign and just about every other uh, campaign, of course, um, and the policies uh, that are developed once these people uh, get to office. Yeah. Now, why, why should the average listener care about this? They've probably never been to Honduras. They may not do any, I mean, they might buy textiles that are made in Honduras and other parts, but, but why should we care? What are longer-term American interests with regard to this, to this policy? Well, I think, you know, there's one very obvious thing, and that's, again, this, this flow of migrants. And, of course, you know, migration is good for the U.S., but when it, when it reaches very high levels, uh, it becomes, you know, more difficult to handle, as we saw uh, in the summer of 2014. Uh, and there's no doubt that this is provoking, you know, more migration of very desperate people, and it's a migration that's provoked, we can say, by U.S. policies that are being implemented in, in the region. So that's one thing. And then another is, 
you know, again, I was referring to some of Hillary Clinton's own advisors who pointed out to her that, you know, if she'd taken a harder line, if she'd called the coup a military coup, with all the implications that that had, um, you know, it would have been much better for the U.S.'s relations with the region. Yeah. And we very quickly saw the evidence of that truth uh, in the months following the coup, where the rest of the region, um, you know, was very, very critical of U.S. policy. Uh, the honeymoon with Obama mm. was, was over, yeah, and real quick. Uh, they started to go in another direction. They created um, a new regional grouping called CELAC, the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, which includes every government in the region except the U.S. and Canada. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of indications that that was prompted by the very fact that the U.S. had such a bad position on the Honduran coup. Amazing stuff. Well, I encourage our listeners to uh, follow your work, Alexander Maine. The website to go to, I believe, is CEPR. Is that right? CEPR.net. Uh, we have a, a blog uh, where we follow, you know, current developments in Latin America and U.S. relations with Latin America, and we have an issues page where you can find many papers and articles on uh, all sorts of countries in Latin America. CEPR.net. Thank you so much. Very informative and important stuff. Alexander Maine, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you, Bert. Come on. 